Hello, and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us, we have Mike Joy, the legendary NASCAR play-by-play broadcaster and the lead play-by-play broadcaster for Fox Sports. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Liam. Glad to be here. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. And we're talking today because this weekend is the NASCAR Cup Series race at Sonoma, as it always is. And Mike here, as he was just telling me before the podcast started, is going to be broadcasting that race. But he will also be racing on the Saturday of the weekend. He will be getting in a car. He will be driving. Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about that? (laughs) Um, Liam, I grew up in central Connecticut, not far from ESPN, uh, Windsor and West Hartford and would spend weekends up on the hillside at Lime Rock or maybe at the oval tracks of Riverside Park or Stafford or Thompson uh, or up at Briar, which is now uh, New Hampshire Motor Speedway, and we'd go to Watkins Glen, and we'd follow our heroes that raced in the Trans Am. Well, historic Trans Am, some 60 years later, involves all of the same exact cars that I used to go see race. They have all been restored uh, to a high standard. They are still prepared, other than new tires, to the rules that were in effect back then. So when you see that yellow number 15 Mustang, that is Parnelli Jones' car. That blue Sunoco Camaro was Mark Donahue's car. Uh, the blue Cuda was Dan Gurney's and Swede Savage. And that lime green Dodge was the car that Sam Posey raced uh, for Dodge. In fact, uh, All of the factories had teams in the Trans Am in 1970. Everybody that made a pony car, a Mustang or Camaro type car, raced in that series. And so this is what we recreate. And there'll be 24 to 30 cars out there. They all have to be prepared to the year of when that car was new. So I drive a 66 Mustang based from the first year of the series. It's not going to be as quick as the 71 uh, Javelin that Mark Donahue dominated with or some of the cars in between, but, but we're going to have a lot of fun. And I think, uh, put on a great show for the fans. For sure. And will it be at all weird for you to be behind the wheel on the racetrack instead of being above and having the Eagles eye view and calling everything as it happens? Not at all. I mean, um, I ran my first pro race when I was 23 at Lime Rock, uh, then quickly found that I didn't have the money to see if I really had any <laughs> talent. Uh, and then, when I found I had the means to go racing, then I didn't have any free time. So I didn't get back in the car until I was more than 40 and then raced uh, SCCA, moved into vintage racing, and now uh, do a few vintage races a year and then do a bunch of BMW club races a year with my son. Uh, he and I have identical cars. His is faster. Well, maybe he's <laughs> Okay. He's a lot faster than I am. But uh, he's faster even than I, than I think I used to be. But we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, once, and, and it was in the 1980s or 90s, I don't recall the exact year, but I raced in a four-hour Firestone Firehawk endurance race at Watkins Glen, and they gave me an in-car radio, and they said, we're going to hook you up to the PA system. Okay, well, we'll see how that works. So the announcer in the tower is going, oh, well, we, we, we hear there's an incident over in turn eight. Mike, can you tell us anything about it? I go, well, I'll be there in a minute. You know, oh yeah, here a car so and so's on his roof, and this car is over here in the wall, and so, stuff like that. So, so I've done play by play from the car before. Yeah. So, well, yes. no, this isn't going to feel strange at all. <laughs> It'll be fun. That must, that must have been fun trying to juggle driving while actually telling them what was going on, like you were a pit reporter or something. <laughs> well, uh, it, it it is different. It obviously, 
Uh, it is going to be different, but uh, but a lot of fun. You know, it's really it's not a lot different than what the spotters do up on the roof mm-hmm. uh, or the feedback the driver gives from the car. If you can imagine driving 180 miles an hour and trying to tell your crew chief what your car is doing, which tire is sticking well to the track and which one, you know, which corner of the car needs help. Um, that's that that that's tougher than what I do. Yeah, I cannot imagine that. Uh, <laughs> I imagine that would be rather difficult, but you obviously with all your, you know, racing experience over the last so, so many years, you have a certain appreciation for that. And so that kind of brings us to uh, the actual cup race on Sunday at Sonoma here, and you're going to be on the call for the whole race. So can you just take us through kind of what your lead up to that is going to be? How do you prepare for to call a race? Well, racing in the COVID era, uh, the pandemic era is is quite different than it used to be, and we're we're trying to transition out of that now. But for the last year and a half, we've had no on-site uh, real real discourse with the players. Mm-hmm. You know, the broadcasters are up here in the tower, and the players are down here in the pits in the garage, and you know, there, there's a barriers in between. So what we've been doing is a lot of Zoom chats uh, with teams, uh, with drivers, with crew chiefs. Um, and a lot of prep on the internet, emails and, and texts. There, there's a couple of text chains that I'm a part of flying back and forth to try to get us ready. And if necessary, pick up the phone, call somebody and, and, uh, and, and try to get some details. And unlike other sports, our athletes have been very, very accessible uh, to the broadcast partners because they know we have a difficult job to do in this era. And we're all looking forward to transitioning out of it as early as uh, in a couple of weeks at, uh, at Texas. So there's a lot of prep and a lot of, like I say, zoom meetings, but then once you get to the racetrack and your boots on the ground, we've already talked through storylines, features that need to be built. And we're still doing our telecast from three different locations mm-hmm. uh, at the track, uh, the graph, uh, the all, of course, all of the cameras are cut at the track last year. We were in Charlotte in the studio calling the race from video that was sent to us from the event site. We weren't allowed to be on site, uh, due to Fox protocols and then the graphics and replays and other elements, those are put in, in Los Angeles. And prior to the pandemic, we had no idea we could do this, that we could do this whole broadcast remotely. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not as effective as being on site. And I know you've seen in other sports, they've been doing uh, what our group calls home run telecasts, where all of the video and a reporter on site gets sent back to a studio where the host or the play-by-play and the analyst sit and call the game. Well, that's hard. That, that's hard to do. It's hard to do in any sport uh, because in football or basketball, you don't see what's happening away from the ball because the coverage follows the ball. Well, in NASCAR, we've got 38 balls and they're all in play at once. And you don't see what's happening or what's developing in the race. You don't notice the closing rate between packs of cars or groups of cars that you would if you were in the booth watching the monitor 40% of the time and watching the track 60% of the time. So that's very different. So now we go to Sonoma, California, one of our absolute favorite places to go. Um, and it's a road race course. It's not an oval track where 
the advantage for the broadcasters and the fans is you can see the entire track at one time. And in oval in road course racing, you can't. Um, none of the road courses we go to, except Daytona and Charlotte, which are modified ovals, can you see the entire racetrack. And you become much more dependent upon the director and on the camera shots uh, to get you where you need to go and, and develop the flow of the race when, once you're actually up there calling it. One of the interesting things that you mentioned about sort of this COVID adjustment era in uh, your, your speech there is the idea of the access to the athletes and how your players are a lot more open to this sort of access than a lot of other, you know, you know, their counterparts in other sports were. And I think that is, do you think that's because, you know, in NASCAR, because the actual event is just like, you literally even can't even see anybody's faces and things like that, that these players understand that they need to work with you a little bit more than perhaps in other sports to make sure that you bring their personalities and these storylines and kind of help drive interest in the sport outside of the physical racing goes? No. <laughs> um, let, let's take baseball. And I, I grew up a Yankees fan and a Cubs fan. So let's take uh, Joe Schlobotnik, who was Charlie Brown and Peanuts' favorite player. Okay. I use his name so he becomes the, gene the generic every, every kid's hero. So Joe Schlobotnik gets paid, I don't know, $9 million a year for the New York Yankees. Mm -hmm. He probably doesn't have to do a lot of interviews. He may not want to do a lot of interviews, and they're not going to make him do many interviews. Where on the other hand, uh, Joe Driver in NASCAR, he drives for a one, two, three, or four car team. Mm -hmm. That's who he's responsible to. And on the hood and quarter panels of his car are two or three different commercial sponsors, which all pay his team to help fund his racing and may pay him a personal services deal, perhaps. Okay. Mm. Now there used to be one sponsor on the car for the whole year and then costs rose quicker than revenue. And so now I can think of only one or two teams that have the same sponsor on the car all year long. So you take those two or three sponsors and you multiply that times, however many different sponsors it takes to get through a season and NASCAR racers or IndyCar racers or IMSA racers, um, they need that publicity to help do their job for their sponsors uh, and for their fans. You know, there's a, there's a, a merch uh, component here, mm -hmm. you know, as well. Uh, Alex Bowman drives for Rick Hendrick. He's yep. won a couple races this year. He's one of the rising stars of the sport. And he made an offhand comment on the radio to his crew chief, which we broadcast, had a little fun with. You know, um, he was talking about a driver uh, that wouldn't work with him and give him a little room on the racetrack. And Alex goes, ah, and the crew chief goes, or the spotter goes, you want me to go talk to his spotter? He goes, nah, he says, don't even worry about it. He says, nobody likes us anyway. Well, now Alex has done real well selling nobody likes us anyway t-shirts. <laughs> in fact, he's done so well that he put up on Twitter today, no, those are fake. He says, we're out of shirts, but we're going to get more. Please only buy them for our site because all the others are fakes. So they're knocking off his shirts. I mean, so I guess that's a, that's a pretty good sign of success. And, and racing has racing's always been like this. You know, I when I started in NASCAR in the mid-70s, you'd go into the garage area at lunchtime and a team owner would say, hey, come on, you know, come on up the hauler and have a bologna sandwich with us. And sit there, you talk to the driver and the crew chief and, and, uh, and the car owner and um, 
if they'd had a good week, it'd be a bologna sandwich. And if they hadn't, it might be a tomato sandwich, you know, but, but that's okay. That that's how the sport worked. And now it's more commercial. It's more complex. There are more big multi-car teams that are owned by individuals who own big corporations. You don't get much bigger than Roger Penske um, or Rick Hendrick uh, or coach Joe Gibbs, who has a, a four car team. That's, that's knocking the lights out for Toyota. So it's become bigger, but the athletes are still pretty much the same. Almost all of them started at some little fifth mile oval somewhere. Mm. Um, Joey Logano's won a championship in this sport. He's from Middletown, Connecticut. And he started about an hour and a half from you in Meriden, Connecticut on I-91. There's a little, I think it's about, a, it's either a 20th or a 10th of a mile track. It's the Silver City Quarter Midget Club. And he started there while he was still in grade school, running, running uh, small cars. Now he's a big, huge star, and he just donated, I think it was about $100,000 to that club to repave that track for the first time since 1975. That's how grassroots uh, auto racing is uh, in that, you know, racing for kids environment. But, you know, Middletown, New York, not far from you, there's great half mile dirt track there. there. There's a lot of small tracks, and that's where these drivers come from. And they go from boy, I wish somebody would ask me for an autograph or boy, I wish somebody would uh, donate some, just some product to us, some SDP, some motor oil, some Sunoco race fuel, maybe a couple of Goodyear tires, you know, to the, to the Logano level where now people are knocking his door down for indoor, to, to get him to do endorsements or product uh, endorsements or appear in their commercials. So it really is a stair step process. There is no, no nobody gets a, $7 million signing bonus coming out of college. A lot of these fellows don't get to go to college. They go to the college of hard knocks at the short tracks and, and show off their skills and, and try to progress. And so I, I think by the time they get to the major leagues of racing to NASCAR, they have a great appreciation for how they got there, where they've been. And uh, they take their media responsibilities quite seriously. And they take uh, the time with the people in the media and and make the most of it and uh, some of the, some of them enjoy it in fact last week at charlotte on saturday uh the xfinity race which xfinity is kind of triple a ball to nascar being major mm -hmm. league let's say uh we do one telecast each year where all the announcers are drivers there are no professionals on the air uh kevin harvick anchored the telecast joey logano uh, was the lead analyst, Ryan Blaney, who's a third generation racer. And uh, uh, I guess I'm told he's quite a hard throb that women either want to mother him or smother him. I don't, you know, it's easy. <laughs> so he's the resident hunk. He's the other analyst. He does a great job as well. And, and we've got uh, Eric Jones and Ricky Stenhouse in the pits. And then even in the Fox studio, Brad Keselowski, who's another champion of the sport. He's anchoring the studio coverage uh, with Chad Knauss, who was a championship uh, crew chief. And, uh, you know, they're, they're all, they're having a great time, but all drivers. And because they've paid attention to how the sport is presented and how it's broadcast on TV, man, they did a great job. They had, they had me reaching <laughs> in the drawer to see how long is my contract? I got to, maybe I got to worry about these guys. And, and someday I will have to worry about these guys. Sure. Be right back with more gold after a word from our sponsors. 
Yeah, and I mean, this is an overall really interesting discussion because of what's happened over the last week with Naomi Osaka and kind of how that has inspired a lot of conversation about the relationship between athletes and media. And it sounds like from your extensive experience in the NASCAR scene that from what I am understanding that you guys have a lot closer of a relationship than other sports. And I know that, you know, in the past you covered some other sports. How does that compare for you and your own personal experience? I did, when I was with CBS from 1983 to 2000, uh, I covered, I, th I think it was 17 different sports. And the reason was because of the Final Four contract in basketball with the NCAA, CBS had the responsibility of doing live or taped coverage of every other Division I final in every other sport. Mm -hmm. So I got to do... Uh, track and field, wrestling, swimming and diving, lacrosse. I did soccer because I had played soccer. In fact, I did all of CBS's soccer for about 10 years. Um, long list. The only thing I ever turned down was rhythmic gymnastics. You know, with the streamers and all that. I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one to, to somebody else. And all I ever asked for was give me a good analyst. Mm. Uh, I had Alexi Lalas for soccer. I know he's been on your channel. Um, and give me tapes of the last three years finals to look to, to prepare and learn the language of the sport and the rules and, and really dive into it. And the best thing about that was college careers are short, they're four years or less. So whoever was in the final this year, you know, probably wasn't in the final previously. And, and so that made it easier. I didn't have any long careers uh, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to have to learn about. And then when did World Cup skiing, and, and, you know, other events, did college football, did, did some other events for CBS. And in almost all of them, the athletes were brought to the media room by a coach or by a trainer or by a team assistant who monitored the interview. The interviews were fairly short. Uh, the questions, I'm sure, were kind of repetitive. And that was the extent of the media engagement. Um, the, the, one, the one to me, the one to me that stands out uh, Pierman Zorbrigan, World Cup skiing champion. Uh, we went to him for an event and, and just sat down one-on-one. -on -one. And, and I told him right off the bat, I said, uh, at, uh, when it comes to skiing, I'm real good at falling down the mountain. But uh, I had a friend, Bob Volick, who had been the French junior national ski champion and who grew up to be a tremendous auto racer. And so I talked to Pyramid about how our sports were similar and the hand-eye the, the hand coordination, the muscle memory, everything that went into downhill skiing at speed was very similar to what an auto, auto racer did. And he got it. And, and here is a fellow who the producer told me afterward was usually given to one and two word answers by the media. We, we had such a great conversation. It was supposed to be uh, one segment on CBS Sports Spectacular, uh, and it ended up being three between his race and, and the conversation we had. So I, that's kind of the difference. In most sports, you don't get much of a chance to develop a rapport with the athletes to, or the time to get in depth and have a good conversation. Mm -hmm. Any more than it would be if you called me up and said, okay, we got 90 seconds. Here you go. Here are your two questions. You know, So, so that's, it's, it's not really a difference in the sport or the way the sports are managed. It's a difference in the availability of time and the prep, a level of preparation you get to do to talk to somebody. Um, 
one of my very good friends who I hope you'll seek out for your channel uh, is Brad Doherty, NBA All-Star with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think he ought to be in the Hall of Fame, but then again, he's a friend of mine. But he wore number 43. Big deal, right? It is, unless you're from North Carolina, when it's a huge deal, because he grew up a Richard Petty fan. And that was Richard Petty's number. Mm -hmm. And he is probably more a fan of racing than of basketball. He owns half of a NASCAR Cup team, JTG Doherty Racing, a two-car two Chevrolet team. And uh, he does, uh, he's, he's on uh, Sirius NASCAR radios a couple of times a week uh, as, as a co-host. Brad has some great stories about racing and, and about basketball. And uh, he'd, he'd make a fantastic guest. Um, yeah. And, and that's the kind of people we have in our sport, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely, I'll keep Brad in mind. If you want to hook me up, you know, I'd love to talk to a former NBA all-star about this sort of thing, but it sounds like, I mean, you really, you, you, you really enjoy this. And this is like, you, you know, you've been in racing since you were young from my, from what you were saying before, and you've been in NASCAR since the mid seventies was doing broadcasting always what you wanted to do? Or was it sort of just like a, I'll be a part of NASCAR and I'll be fine with whatever that leads, wherever that leads. No, not really. It, I am told um, that on family road trips, I would narrate the highway songs. <laughs> I, mean, I grew up watching. Oh man, he was born for it, huh? Our, our family watched uh, Walter Cronkite every night mm -hmm. uh, at dinner. That was kind of a, a, a family ritual and one I continue with my kids. And I don't know. I think, I think performing and broadcasting came pretty naturally to me. But no, I, I wanted to race. When I, when I went to college, I studied engineering. I wanted to be the next Mark Donahue or the next Dan Gurney. And like I say, didn't really get that chance because you don't just play auto racing like you do baseball or football in the sandlot. You need an infrastructure. You need a, a garage to work on the car. You need the proper tools to build it and rebuild it and repair it. Uh, you need the money for the parts and the equipment and the consumables like fuel and tires. And um, so I was one of, you know, lots of college kids that didn't have that. So we got to do something. We got to do road rallies where you would uh, follow a prescribed course and maintain average speeds during that course. That was fun with a driver and a navigator. And we got to uh, autocross, uh, something NASCAR Hall of Famer Mike Stefanik called pylon racing, where they go and stick a whole bunch of orange cones in a parking lot and you run that course for time. And mm -hmm. cars are classed according to their performance ability. And, you know, that was a lot of fun, but still it's not, it's not wheel to wheel racing. And, and there's, there's nothing that can approximate that. So, like I said, we, you know, I put together a business plan, got some sponsors, borrowed some money, put together a race team. Uh, in 73, we ran a couple of races and then we were broke. So the dream kind of died on the vine for then. It remained a dream. But during that period, the local quarter mile stock car track said uh, they needed an announcer. And I had been doing stick and ball sports in, in college. And we were autocrossing at that track on Sunday. They raced stock cars on Saturday. And the fellow who owned the place came in and couldn't understand why people were sitting there watching one car go around at a time, uh, you know, to my really excited commentary, why they weren't out spending money in his amusement park. And they, they figured it out. 
And they hired me to do Saturday night public address. Uh, at Ken Squire would come around. He was the CBS anchor for auto racing, owned a couple of tracks in Vermont. He would come in for some of the big races. We got to know each other. And of course, I was a big fan of his work. And Ken helped open some doors for me, uh, first with NASCAR's radio network, and then later with television. And in 1983, I joined Ken at CBS. And I mean, that was, man, that was it. That was the most you could hope for mm-hmm. in auto racing to be part of that CBS broadcast team in NASCAR. Problem was CBS only did three races a year. So that left a lot of time to fill. Uh, and so I would do cable, I would do radio, I would still do some public address. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then had that meeting that led to the Zerbergen piece. And that led to college football and a lot more opportunities. So that by the time I ended up, my time at CBS when they lost NASCAR after 2000, um, yeah, I'd done 17 other sports and just had a blast doing it all along the way. And then when you launched into the Fox NASCAR situation, they just wanted you to do NASCAR. Um, pretty much. See, uh, Fox Sports had, I think at the time, of course, the NFL was why Fox Sports was created. And when they acquired the rights from NASCAR, they also had some Major League Baseball. But kind of um, at, at the top level of sports, what got me there is what later kept me right there in that box is that both CBS and Fox, unlike ABC and NBC at the time, ABC, Jim McKay hosted everything. Mm -hmm. Keith Jackson hosted uh, everything. Bill Fleming, you know, you'd see those fellows on sports where they didn't have a lot of depth. Um, CBS and Fox hired people and trusted people who were experts in that sport. Mm -hmm. That's why Ken Squire was the voice of auto racing. Um, at CBS. And it's why I got hired first at Fox to do Formula One uh, in conjunction while I was doing CBS with NASCAR and then transitioned when uh, Fox acquired the NASCAR rights. Everybody on that show, with the exception of Chris Meyer as the host, who purposely is a generalist and not a specialist in racing. And also uh, we started Genie Zelasco was one of our, our pit reporters. But otherwise, everybody was immersed uh, in auto racing pretty much full time. And it, it continued that way. As somebody who was passionate about auto racing, what was that like for you to enter this room full of analysts and know that you guys are pretty much all on like the same level of interest and the same level of general knowledge? Well, the best thing was uh, we knew each other first. Uh, Darrell Waltrip, who had retired as a, a three-time champion and Hall of Fame driver, Larry McReynolds, who had won the Daytona 500 twice as a crew chief, and I had done some cable races for CBS in in the couple of years preceding. And I made sure that the bosses at Fox uh, and my agent, Sandy Montag, made sure that they saw tapes of those races and and enjoyed the combination. So the thing about Daryl, Larry, and I was we were all friends first Mm -hmm. and we all trusted each other. Mm -hmm. And we all pretty much tried to stay in our lanes. Larry wasn't going to try to tell you how to drive. Daryl wasn't going to try to tell you how to fix the car. And, and I tried to keep things moving and keep things even because I wasn't an expert. People, people wanted to hear the expertise from those who had been there and done that and done it very, very well. So it worked. It was a great partnership. It lasted, um, oh, 16, 
16, 15 or 16 years, somewhere in there. And I believe that we were the longest running three-man booth in the history of network sports television. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Worked really well. We then moved uh, Larry to a uh, an analyst role in the studio and, and he became our rules expert, something Fox had perfected with the NFL and also our strategist. And when Jeff Gordon retired from his hall of fame career driving, we moved him into the booth with Daryl. And so that was, that was the first change. Uh, Daryl retired and now Clint Boyer has been added to our booth and Clint, man, Clint's just, just stand back. Um, he and Blake Shelton are buddies. If that gives you any idea, Clint's personality. Yeah. And it's just, man, stand back. <laughs> here we go. And Jeff and I, who are, I think Jeff and I are very good explainers. I'm not sure we're the greatest entertainers. And, and that's what Clint brings along with, with a really good racing resume of having won championships at lower levels and having won 10 cup races. He certainly knows what he's doing. And last year he was right there on the field racing full-time in NASCAR cup. So he has that currency of having just been there and done that. So, but between us, we're still having a lot of fun. Well, naturally, and I'm glad to hear it. And Mike, this was a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you coming on and chatting about NASCAR and media and all that good stuff. And I wish you best of luck on Sunday. Thanks, Liam. We'll, uh, we'll have a blast. Uh, in fact, we insist on it. And I think if we enjoy it, the viewers will too. I think that's a good rule of thumb for the future. And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning in to the Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.